you could pick one piece of digital media that you would want to preserve forever, for hundreds of years, what would you want to store forever? Store forever? I would store forever. I would store the first Roger Rabbit novel, Who Censored Roger Rabbit? I think that's my masterpiece. I think that's the best thing I've ever written. It might be the best thing I'll ever write. And if, if I'm going to be remembered, that would be it. You're tuned to the Rcast, where we talk about the blockchain on the Rcast and how your data remains the Rcast, where R drive is the topic, censorship resistant permanence. Yeah, we got it. Hello, friends. It's Andrew. Welcome to episode 40 of the Rcast. Shout out to everyone who came to our events in Warsaw and in Singapore. We had a great time at Are We Day in Warsaw and Are We in Asia. Thanks to everyone who came to our meetups. We've just added pins to the R Drive app. So if you have files on another drive or you just have a transaction that you love or you want to pin this Rcast, just pin that flavor and you're good to go. Turbo is live. If you want to use a credit card to pay for permanent storage, you can. That's what's up. And the testnet for ARIO is popping. Shout out to everyone running gateways. This has been amazing. Um, as a result of the Hollywood strike, a lot of Hollywood creators have been turning to R-Drive to archive their work. This week on the Rcast, I interviewed Roger Rabbit creator Gary K. Wolf about what he wants to preserve forever. And if you go to rogerrabbit.rweeb.dev, you can see his shirt archive, and you can read the first chapter of Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which is the book that Disney turned into the iconic movie. So as you can tell, I'm a big fan of this guy, a big fan of this whole pop culture moment. And so let's get into it. This is my interview with Gary K. Wolf right here on the Rcast. Welcome to the Rcast. I am here with Gary K. Wolf, who over the years, his work has consistently touched upon societal structures, technological advancements, the issue of unchecked power dynamics, and it's great to have him on the show. So Gary, welcome to the Rcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Good, great to be here. And when you run down that list of things that I've been working on and things that I've written, I don't know any of that. I thought I just wrote silly stories about rabbits, but I think people read into my work a lot of stuff that is probably there, but I stuff that I'm not aware of. You've had such a decades-long impact on popular culture and the way content is distributed has changed. And you've stayed nimble and flexible and embraced digital publishing. A central theme of your work is imagination and parody and reference and pastiche. You touch on dark themes of like government control and manipulation, but the undying human spirit and the permanent legacy we leave. If you could pick one piece of digital media that you would want to preserve forever, for hundreds of years, what would you want to store forever? Store forever? I would store forever. I would store the first Roger Rabbit novel, Who Censored Roger Rabbit? I think that's my masterpiece. I think that's the best thing I've ever written. It might be the best thing I'll ever write. And if, if I'm going to be remembered, that would be it. The second thing that I, I would like to be remembered by is on my tombstone. If when I die on my tombstone, it says, here lies Gary K. Wolf. He created Roger Rabbit and Toontown. That's enough. That's enough. Mm. That's quite a legacy. I, you know, that's more than I ever thought I would leave anybody. It's pretty spectacular to me. 
Those characters yeah. are going to outlive me. Those characters are going to be around for decades, maybe a century after I'm gone. Like in a hundred years, people finding your story, learning about your origins as in science fiction, learning about the movie, learning about all the novels and <laughs> the other archive yeah. you have, you have all these shirts, pictures of it and the merchandise. Like you've done a good job documenting <laughs> all the stuff outside well, of the movie. Disney would send me one of every, everything that they made and, I, I would put on the shirt and take a picture of it. And then I, I, I post my Wolf's t-shirt of the day and they're still coming. I'm still getting t-shirts. What's your favorite piece of Roger Rabbit merchandise? I told my wife that if I ever saw any Roger Rabbit merchandise, way before there was any Roger Rabbit, I said, if they ever make any merchandise, uh, I'm going to buy the first piece of Roger Rabbit merchandise I see. When the movie came out, it premiered in Radio City Music Hall, 1988, June. And the next day, my wife and I had heard that there was Roger Rabbit merchandise at Macy's. We were staying in New York City, of course, and we went over to Macy's. I asked the woman at the information desk on the first floor, I said, hey, do you have Roger Rabbit merchandise? She says, yes, we do. And I said, where is it? She says, second floor. I said, oh, uh, we're on the second floor. She says, Second floor. It's just the whole second floor. So we took the elevator up and got off the elevator. And the whole second floor was Roger Rabbit merchandise. The first thing I saw was a Roger Rabbit plastic lunchbox with a, a thermos inside. And of course, I had to buy it because it was the first piece of Roger Rabbit merchandise I saw. I still have it. Never sell it. Best article of clothing was the crew jacket that uh, I got when I was uh, working on the movie. And it's, it's a heavy windbreaker because we were doing it in London and it was cold. And it has the logo on the back, who framed Roger Rabbit. And it has the old logo with the handcuffs. The original logo had a pair of handcuffs hanging off it. We had a guest on a few weeks ago who'd said that Toontown is the original metaverse. I have been told that. I just did a, a session with an artist in Houston, Ju Young Choi, who uh, does artworks based on world building. And she wanted to interview me because she said that she got her ideas about world building from watching the Who Framed Roger Rabbit movie and from reading my books. And one of the things that I got into when I was discussing world building was the fact that when I came up with the idea for a world where cartoon characters was real, the thing that I had to do was to come up with the rules of the world. All of the things that would happen in that world that wouldn't happen in a world without cartoon characters. I had to be consistent because if I did something in the book, in the story, that was inconsistent with a world where cartoon characters were real, I would immediately uh, lose my readers because they would immediately say, the readers are smart, and they would immediately say, oh, that would never happen. I could not have a, oh, that would never happen uh, moment. And it, it was tough because I Toontown, everything talks. Your pencil talks, your desk talks, your television talks, you, uh, the fire hydrants talk. The other thing was, I had to name the cartoon characters. And I don't mean Roger or Jessica and Baby Herman. What are they called? I was fascinated by Looney Tunes. I said, ah, oh, Tunes, that's an interesting name. 
I think I'll call them tunes. And so I call them tunes. And uh, there may well be some researcher out there doing a PhD paper on tunism. But as far as I can tell, that was the first instance of anybody calling a cartoon character a tune. And someday I'll be in the Webster's Dictionary on the de definition of tune from the wolf. That's something that's like distinctive about you as a writer and as a, a, a creator of fair, famous characters. You gave an interesting origin story to Jessica. It, it made me think like one of the things about Jessica's characters in Serious Business is she's obsessed with spy novels, right? Is that part of you? Was she inspired by your love of storytelling in a way? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, no question about it. You have to write what you know. And in the first three novels, I wrote about comic books, cartoons, comic strips, and hard-boiled private eyes. In the Jessica Rabbit series business novel, I wrote about one of my other loves, which is James Bond spy novels. I, I read my first one when I was in college. Dr. No came out. It reminded me of Black Widow a little bit. It's like a proto-feminist novel that interestingly tied in with the rebranding of the ride. I don't know if that was a happy or unfortunate coincidence, but I came out with a Jessica Rabbit novel. I talk about how she meets Roger. Uh, and uh, shortly after that came out, Disney changed the Jessica Rabbit character in the ride from Jessica Rabbit in a red dress to Jessica Rabbit in a kind of a Dick Tracy raincoat and hat. Recently, in the Chippendale movie, people might have been surprised to see a cameo from your boy. And I'm wondering how it felt for you to ha hear Charles Fleischer do his voice again and see that. I was gratified. And people were saying that was essentially the Roger Rabbit sequel. I, I don't agree with that. I, uh, I don't think it was nearly as charming, even though they used a lot of characters from a lot of different places. I didn't get the connection to Chip and Dale that I got to Roger Rabbit in the first movie. But that being said, it was nice to see Roger Rabbit up on the big screen again, doing his little dance. And it was nice to hear Charlie doing the voice one more time. When you've done four Toontown novels, you think you've pretty much dug the mine as deep as you can dig it. But I keep going back and I keep finding areas of Toontown that I haven't explored. And in my latest one, which is I still haven't titled, I'm still working on a title, I've come up with yet another category of tune character. I basically write to amuse myself. Uh, I write to make myself laugh and I write to, to have a good time. But in all of my books, I have to make sure that the mystery is some kind of a mystery that would not exist in a world without cartoon characters. The villain in Who Censored Roger Rabbit simply would not exist in a world that cartoon characters don't exist. Yeah. And like in Who Censored Roger Rabbit, there's a Kermit the Frog squeeze toy, right? That's central to the plot where yeah. that book is contemporary to the 80s, but feels like a Raymond Carver timeless mystery. So you blend mm -hmm. genre and time. And so when you're world building, you really have to be thoughtful about these things. You have to know when to break the rules and when to stick to them. And that's what gives your work this sort of cohesive literary agency and timelessness. And I thought it'd be interesting to go back and talk about Love Story, which was your first published story oh, in 1970. Yeah. <laughs> well, Love Story was my very first science fiction story. And I wrote it 
because I used to write poems for my wife. And she said, gee, these poems are so nice. You should try writing a story. And because and, and, she knew I loved to write anyway. And so I said, okay. So I spent a year writing this story. And it was 50 pages long. And I sent it off to a science fiction magazine, of which there were a lot back in those days. And I didn't hear anything. After a year goes by and I get a telegram. And it says, we've read your story, love story, and we'd like to include it in our magazine. And if uh, you agree, please send us a telegram back and we'll pay you $50. To me, that was huge. I was actually dancing on my kitchen table when I got that telegram. So they sent me the 50 bucks. I started writing short stories and I was pretty prolific. And I pretty much wrote and sold uh, everything I, I did. I, I never got a reject. I wrote my first novel, which was called Killer Bowl. This was a story about football. I wrote it in 1976, and it would be played as a blood sport. They would play it with weapons, with uh, knives, clubs. There would be one hidden safety who had a rifle with one bullet, and it was played on the city streets over a 24-hour period on a Sunday. And it was extremely successful in science fiction circles, extremely. In, in that book, 1976, I predicted the gas crisis, the internet, cell phones, and most of all, like mixed martial arts sports and full contact combat sports. I started another book, A Generation Removed, which um, was uh, a, a story about a world where young people have seized control of the government and they have passed onerous laws affecting old people. If you're in ill health, if you lose your job, uh, any number of things, you can be euthanized. The next novel I wrote was called The Resurrectionist, which was it's a story of matter transference. It was only after those three that I wrote Roger Rabbit, which incorporated wow. the big loves of my life, which were comic books, cartoons, and noir mysteries. And oddly enough, that was the one that was hardest to publish. I, I sent that one into Doubleday as the fourth novel of my four-book contract, and they rejected it. And so I asked I asked the head of marketing at Doubleday, I said, what would happen if somebody gave you today The Wizard of Oz or Gulliver's Travels or Alice in Wonderland? What would you do with those? And he thought I couldn't sell those either. That's great words of wisdom. And with all the technology now where the things you create can find a home on the internet and be preserved forever, you never know when someone's going to give something a chance. Roger Rabbit's become like a, a, a meme almost because you get all this fan art, you get all these different renditions, the cosplaying, the costumes. So here's a story that I've never told anybody. I'll tell you, all right? Okay. The, the reason I am so good to my fans, they all have Jack Brickhouse to thank for that. When I was a kid, I lived in Chicago, and I was a big fan of the Chicago Cubs. I used to listen to the, and of course, we didn't have television back then. This was pre-television. They weren't televising baseball games, so you listened to them on the radio. And the announcer for the Chicago Cubs was a guy named Jack Brickhouse. And I loved Jack Brickhouse because he was just a great announcer. And I loved baseball. I loved sports. One, one day, Jack Brickhouse was saying that, oh, his birthday was January 24th. And... I said to my mom, geez, Jack Brickhouse's birthday is the same day as mine. And so my mom said, oh, you should send him a birthday card. And I said, oh, okay, I'll send him a birthday card. And she said, put a handkerchief in it. A handkerchief is always an appropriate gift. 
birthday gift. So I bought a, I bought a men's handkerchief and a birthday card. And I put this handkerchief in the birthday card and I sent it to Jack Brickhouse at WGN in Chicago. And I said, happy birthday. Your birthday is the same as my birthday. And by golly, he wrote me back and said, oh, thanks. I hope you like the, you listen to me and I hope you like uh, the games and all that kind of So the next year I did it again. Sent him another handkerchief and another birthday card and he wrote me back again. And I did that for six years, every year. And every year, Jack Brickhouse would write me back and thank me for the handkerchief and the birthday card and wish me a happy birthday. And mm. I told my mom, I told my mom, I said, if I ever get to be famous enough that people write me letters, I'm always going to write them back. So you fans have got Jack Brickhouse to thank for that wherever he is. And the Chicago Cubs. Every time somebody wrote me a nice letter, I would autograph a copy of the book and send them a copy of the book. And so pretty soon I had none left. I did not have a single copy of Who Censored Roger Rabbit. I didn't have a copy until we were making the movie. And Steve Spielberg came to me and said, Gary, I said, I read this book when it came out in 1981. And I thought it was a great book. And now we're making the movie. And I'm wondering, can you give me a first edition autograph for my bookshelf? And you don't say no to Steven Spielberg, right? But I had none. So I had to go to a used book dealer, actually an antiquarian book dealer, and pay $300 for a copy of my own book in pristine shape, which I then autographed and gave to Steve Spielberg, right? I never told Steve Spielberg he had a secondhand used book. And years later, when, when after the movie came out, I was giving a talk to my cousin's third grade class. And so afterwards, one of her students came to me to ask, answer some questions for the school newsletter. Uh, I said, sure, go ahead, ask your questions. And so he, he was done. He says, okay, that's all the questions I have. And I said, okay, I was a journalism major. And if you want to be a journalism major and you want to do journalism, what you have to do at the end of every interview is you have to ask your subject, okay, now tell me one thing that you've never told anybody else. <laughs> and he thought, okay, tell me one thing that you've never told anybody else. And I told him the Steven Spielberg story, which he put into his little mimeograph newsletter, right? And I thought, that's fine. Except his father was a stringer, a reporter for the Associated Press. And his father takes this <laughs> newsletter and reads that story and puts it on the Associated Press newswire. So now the story is everywhere, Right. As a result of that, of the 50 books that I had sent out to people, 32 of those people sent them back. They read that story about how I had no copies of my own book, and 32 people sent me that book back, which I thought was just sensational. If you are an artist or a creative person, and you're doing something that you truly believe in, and you really and truly think it's good and it's right, don't change it no matter what anybody tells you, because in this day and age, sooner or later, somewhere, somehow, with all of the many avenues open to you, somehow that that piece of work will get published, will get printed, will get whatever. Just believe in it and believe in yourself. I've got a big deal, Roger Rabbit-ish movie that I can't talk about that I hope will spring back into a production as soon as the writer's strike is over. 
and got a lot of surprises for Roger Rabbit fans coming in the future. I'm working on a Roger Rabbit novel. I'm working on uh, a, a hard-boiled Private Eye novel set in Boston. No cartoon characters in it whatsoever. It, it's going back to my roots. In fact, I have never written, for as much as I like hard-boiled Private Eye novels, I have never written straight hard-boiled Private Eye novels. This is going to be a first for me. So I'm working on that. I'm working on the new Roger Rabbit novel. We got some some secret insights right here on the. Yeah, podcast, we'll be so. we'll be back talking in a year from now, and you'll say, "Whoa, where did that go?" <laughs> Gary, thank you so much. For those of you who haven't read the Serious Business, go to GaryWolf.com. There you can buy it digitally. You can buy physical copies of it and the other books too. And I also really love the Road to Toontown, which is a compilation of stories, which is e-published and you can get physical copies of it too. So check out all of Gary's stuff and he's a very prolific author. So Gary, thank you for being on the show. This has been hey, awesome. It's my pleasure. You're one of the best I've ever had interview me. And this was no exception. My, my top two interviews have both been you. So oh, th thank you, Gary. That means a lot to me. The best art cast ever. Well, maybe the best art cast so far. We'll be back soon with more stories about digital permanence and how to archive your story forever know before you stow check out turbo shout out to everyone running the gateways and we'll see you soon i'm andrew and this has been the rcast thanks gary